I, I can't tell. I just have a loud voice. Okay. Um, yeah? All right. So we're going to take a look at a topic that may not seem as exciting as other topics as I introduce it. And um, as we look at the topic that emerges from it. But I'll bet you, as a matter of fact, I will give you Daniel's salary if you do not find this topic to be at least moderately interesting by the end of it. Can, can I just say, even though this said no, I'm going to be sharing my testimony in next week's message, a little bit of it. And part of it is that I was just a raging hippie for years. So, Tim, you did my heart so much good with that kiss the pig joke. Thank you. So, <laughs> I know that's so tangential and has nothing to do with anything, but I was just sitting there snickering as I was looking at my sergeant buddy over there. And You want to come give me a holy smooch? <laughs> so, I bet that this topic will be more interesting as we go along. So, the flow of what we've been looking at We started with the humility of Jesus back in chapter 2. And then we began to look at what it looks like when a church takes on the humility of their Savior and the health and the joy and the beauty of being a part of a church that is continually being shaped by the humility of Christ. And then next in the progression, we look at humble church leadership and what it looks like when a leadership truly reflects and begins to grasp the humility of Christ and grows as humble, Christ-like servants. And I'm going to tell you the end of the story up front, which kind of ruins any suspense that might build. But when that begins to happen, it's beautiful. When a body of believers takes on the humility of Christ and they're led by a plurality of elders who are determined to cultivate humble leadership culture, then the church looks like what the church is supposed to look like, and that's Jesus. That's what the church begins to look like. You're probably never going to find a human being that is more excited by the topic of church leadership than I am. Um, That might not even be hyperbole. There's a fancy name for the doctrine of church leadership that's called ecclesiology for all two of you that care. And most of my friends know me as an ecclesiology geek. I'm not saying that that makes me an expert, but it is a topic that I love. It's something that might be a dry topic to some, and it's something that is probably one of my greatest passions. So forgive me ahead of time if I get a little bit passionate while bringing this forth to you guys The reason this topic is so dear to me, and in my opinion should be dear to every pastor, and I want you to hear this, please, please hear this, because it kind of sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about, is I have ministered to so many people who have come out of or are still struggling with church hurt. So many, in fact, that it would appear that those who are suffering from church hurt or have just given up altogether, or are considering giving up, or are still a part of a church, but are disillusioned with the church, has almost become a mission field unto itself. Have you ever met anybody in that spot? Anybody here? I mean, you ever meet somebody that's struggled through profound church hurt, and they're like, man, I still love Jesus, but this whole issue of the church is starting to throw me off, and do I really have to go to such a flawed place to be able to find my unflawed Savior, the Bible would say yes. 
But through that, I've been able to trace a common thread through the stories that I've listened to in my 12 years of pastoral ministry, and that's that most church hurt comes from unhealthy, unhumble, unbiblical, resulting in unfaithful church leadership. Most of the marred witness of the church has been because of unfaithful leaders. I mean, it's funny, not in funny like ha-ha kind of way, but I've heard some of the most profoundly condemning sermons come from pastors who rant against people for not being the influence they're supposed to be in their community. And what they mean by that often is you're not growing the church enough to make me look good so that I'm satisfied with my ego problems as I stand in front of you and look at empty chairs. But I've heard these sermons where they ramble against people being delivered by men who would be better served to take the log out of their own eye rather than standing up here examining the specs of the people who are sitting in the pews. I'm also passionate about it because it's my own story. I suffered profound church hurt in ways where I still look back and say, how did this happen? Even if we do disagree, we're Christians. When did somebody get the right to just stop behaving like a Christian in the middle of this process just because we don't agree on some matter of theology or leadership. Even if we do disagree, we are supposed to approach it with the love and the humility and the character of Christ. And it made me search the Scriptures to find answers. I I never wanted to give up on Jesus. That was never a temptation of mine. But I had to be tempted that the church was the place where you could still come and find Him. And I'm not alone in that. I spoke at an Acts 29 conference recently about cultivating the mission field of loving those who have come out of church hurt. I've actually spoken on two different occasions about this at conferences. And I've had people that have come out of the woodwork just bawling that somebody understood and gave words to the things that they were feeling. So, I just want to encourage you. If that's you, there's hope. I've had those same people come up to me and say, guess what? Jesus is huge to me again. Not that Jesus makes sense to me again, or that church makes sense to me. Jesus is huge. He's massive to me again. I accepted the fact that I was just going to fizzle out, that I was on the back nine, that, that, that I was supposed to just live out the rest of my days just trying to be faithful, but I was never going to actually encounter or engage Jesus in a meaningful way in this thing that we call the church. I've grown to accept that, but guess what? God stopped me in the middle of that. He arrested that course, and now Jesus is sweeter and bigger than He has ever been. And I want to tell you, this church is filled with people that have that story. And I say it because you guys don't all know each other's stories. This is two churches blending together. You don't know each other. You might think, hey, that church, they had it all together. Things were good there. Things were sweet over here. Guess what? No. That's not the case. Both. I've sat with plenty of people who have described church hurt after church hurt. And I have to tell you, man... Every time somebody comes up to me and tells me that Jesus is infinitely sweet to them again, I still tear up, even though I've now heard it probably a couple of hundred times. 
That's why I get so passionate about the topic of humble church leadership. So let's dig in and may Jesus be huge to us this morning. Starting in verse 19. 9 with a 10 on the end. I hope that I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by good news of you. The first lesson we see about humble church leadership, and these will be projected up behind me for any note takers, is that this could apply to humble people in general, but humble people rejoice in what God is doing through others. I'm not sure if you know Paul's situation when he wrote this letter, but Paul was in prison when he wrote to the Philippians. So he had his hands full of his own stuff. He was in a Roman prison so that hopefully the final outcome was that he could meet with one of the most maniacal emperors of all time at the end of that imprisonment. Yet in the midst of that, he has a heart for the Philippians. Listen, he planted the Philippian church back in Acts chapter 16, and his heart was still for the church. And this point might be a little bit tangential, but I think it's critical. Paul's heart expressed here brings up another example of the humility that Christ was developing in him. Is that That's that Paul was going through major crisis, yet somehow avoided being self-absorbed by it all. And that in itself is a miracle. Often prolonged crisis leads to complete and total self-absorption. You really have to let, you have to work hard if you're a person in suffering. If you're here and you've been suffering, you can resonate with what I'm saying. You have to work hard to not let the suffering begin to define you, to be your identity, to say that I no longer identify primarily with Christ, but I identify in my suffering And it also takes God's Spirit strengthening you from within and God's people strengthening you from without. But Paul was not only able to avoid the trap of self-absorption, he was able to rejoice in what God was doing in other people. What a gift. What an example. It takes true humility. The humility that can lift your eyes off of what is in front of you, off of something that you can feel that's so tangible, suffering that is real, very real, and to fix them on Jesus and what He is doing in and through other people and learning to do it not just as a distraction from your pain, but something where you can honestly rejoice. It's not hyperbole. It's not Christian ease. You are honestly rejoicing even if you find yourself in a season in the midst of suffering. And guys, you would think or you would wish that most people were able to rejoice in what God is doing in others. But I want to tell you that that's so not often the case. I can give you examples of it, and I will in a second, but the Scripture itself takes us there. I would say in most experiences, it's most often not the case that leaders rejoice in what God is doing in others. It's sad how often people see God working somewhere else as a competition rather than something to rejoice in. You know what? Sad's not the right word. It's full-on pathetic. Pathetically unbiblical should have been the word that I used. And just further evidence that churches slip into the McFranchise model rather than looking at the biblical model. If you own a franchise, guess what you don't want? You don't want a similar franchise opening up across the street. 
If you own Outback, you don't want Langhorn Steakhouse opening across the street. If you own McDonald's, you don't want Burger King opening up across the street. We're not a franchise. We're a church. We don't play by those rules. That's nonsense. We're not at competition for a lot of reasons, but primarily because we're not pulling from the same customer base. That's why they get upset. They say there's only so many people in this county that are going to eat my steaks. So if there's another place across the street, they might go eat their steaks. Because how many people are really going to come and eat steaks? We're not selling steaks. We're presenting the risen son of hope to people who need to hear the gospel. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people express trepidation to a new work because it might take some people away from what they were doing. And they're so far from rejoicing in what God is doing in others that they could focus, all they could focus on is trying to maintain their own church. And these are not just stories. I've seen it myself. I've experienced it myself. I've heard a church say to me, I, I, I put quotes, if you move here, you could hurt our building project because people just started going to, if people just started going to your church. I had a church tell me, We've already got this area covered, so why don't you go and plant elsewhere? I had a church tell me when I was meeting with some pastors about exactly where we were going to plant. I had a pastor actually tell me, we're already reaching this area, so why don't you go and reach somewhere else? Got this covered? Reaching this area? Look, we don't want your couple of dozen stale Christians. It's pathetic that I have to look them in the eye and tell them, I don't want your people. As a matter of fact, if they came, I'd probably tell them to go back. We are convinced that the literal hundreds of thousands of those who have never heard the gospel in our neighborhoods is the reason that propels us to start new works and plant churches. Amen? But instead of seeing the new works as aiding that mission, they see it as a threat. And it's because somewhere along the line they stop rejoicing. Guys, there's a new church plant starting in Tom's River. I want to just tell you that for many reasons. Maybe some of you would be better off there, so we want to invite you to go. Um, also, I, I don't know much about them. I hope that they're solid. But if they come preaching Christ crucified and the gospel is central, then we welcome them as brothers and sisters. We don't feel threatened by them. But God, we just started to grow. And now there's empty seats because they're taking our people away. I want no part in that kind of nonsense. If you want to see these seats full, go evangelize your neighborhood. That's how we fill these seats. We don't do it by being the new cool church in town and we're like, well, now all the other churches that aren't as cool as us and they don't have an eight-piece worship team, they're going to start coming to our church. (laughs) No. You can't find a biblical precedent for that kind of garbage. And I wanted to say this as clearly as possible. We will not be a church that sees God at work at other churches as competition. We will rejoice. This area could use a thousand more churches dropped on it tomorrow. And guess what? I've done, I've done the demographic. There are on the towns that are covered by the people that come here, and it's probably grown because I know that there's probably people that come to TFC, that were going to TFC that come from other towns that I've not. There are 800,000 people in the driving radius. 800,000. Can you honestly tell me that we have enough churches to reach 8,000 people for Jesus in this area? If you think that, 
go and sit in one of them that has 20 people in it and another one that has 30 people in it and another one that has 200 people in it. It still doesn't add up. I don't care how many people you have. If you do the math, it does not work. It seems pretty obvious. If you are in ministry, you should be rejoicing in works that are being planted and cultivated to reach new people. Don't be small-minded. Rejoice in what God is doing in other places that are not your own. We serve a huge God. You want to know how big our God is? He's so big that he can work here and somewhere else at the same time. (laughs) Is that nuts? If you don't believe me, I want you to think for a second. You want to think about something nuts that will blow your mind? Think about the hypostatic union of Christ. That somehow he was in Mary's womb, yet controlling the universe at the same time. He was born and had to learn wisdom, yet he was fully wise at the same time. He was singularly present, yet omnipresent at the same time. Jesus can be at the church down the street, and Jesus can show up here is all he also. It's not a competition, folks. I hope you guys get that point so strongly before I move on. Second point is humble leadership is deeply concerned for the welfare of other people. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. So Paul says that he's sending Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by good news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned in your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he served me in the gospel. Again, I would hope it's not the case. As o- you would hope that this was just not the case as often as it, as it really is. You would hope that somebody who is answering the call from God, that it would originate out of a love for God, resulting in a love for God's people and a desire to reach those who are not yet reached by the gospel. It seems pretty obvious, right? If you're in ministry, you should love people, or more accurately, you should love God, and as you are pressed out, the love of God is being manifested in you and through you towards the people that he has given you to shepherd. But Paul even addresses the fact that it's exceedingly rare. Look with me at verse 20 again. After he says, I am no one like him, there's no one who's really concerned about your welfare, for they all seek their own interests not the interests of Christ. He says, all the people out there that I see, they're more concerned about their own welfare. He actually uses the word alos, which is the strongest word in the Greek to communicate all. He's saying everybody that I witnessed, they're concerned about their own interests. And this is not a small problem. And then Paul uses some more strong terms. First of all, he says nobody. He says, I'm sending you Timothy... Because there is nobody that seems all that concerned about your welfare. And then he uses the word all, as in all people that should be concerned about your welfare are concerned more about their own welfare rather than the welfare of the church. How sad. Really, this is the driving force behind the last couple paragraphs of chapter 2. The fact that these people were not loved properly, so Paul was willing to sacrifice greatly, and you'll see how great in a moment, to send them folks that would shepherd them and lead them and love them with the love of Jesus Christ. Paul's words had an application to the original audience, to the Philippians. They were actually experiencing these things because of a resulting failure of humble leadership. But it was not intended just for them. It was intended through them to us. If you are here, and if I told you the stories that I've encountered of people, pastors, 
loving their own self-interests more than the flock, it would make you sick. You would have a hard time, hopefully hard time, believing the things that I was telling you. This spirit is very much alive in this culture today, and especially in this area where old denominational money can just continue to keep a church afloat that hasn't preached the gospel in a hundred years. But it still has the lights on, and there's still the same people showing up to a place devoid of God's presence. I can't stress enough, and I speak your pastors. We were actually all going to come up one by one and just affirm this, but I didn't want it to feel forced, so I'm just going to let the preached word fall where it may. We love you. We're not in this for our own interests. So I want to be really transparent with you guys for a minute, and I've got a couple of moments in transparency before we finish up, and I I hope that my transparency won't be held against me, but you know what? You're going to realize that this is just me. So I don't really care if it's held against me either. Um, When we were presented with the opportunity to bring the two churches together, we started thinking about not being mobile anymore and all of the benefits. I was so convicted that that's where my heart went. I remember sitting with Daniel in our office in Manilokan Road, just weeping from conviction. We said to each other, from here on out, we repent and we move forward with these saints as if there was no building involved because Christ did not die for facilities. He died for people. And he did not send us to love a facility. He sent us to love a people. So we started asking the right question, which we should have been asking right along. If there was no building, would we still love these people enough that the people alone would be enough to make us interested in this marriage of the two churches? And it took us five seconds for the Lord to change the hearts that badly needed conviction and to be able to show us, yes, absolutely, we would be interested in such a venture. And we love you. That's why we can say we love you. There is no trick up our sleeve. There is no ulterior motive. Not looking out for our own interests, as Paul says here, but deeply concerned for Christ and Christ's people. And I want to say this pretty strongly, and I can say it with confidence, that we are not looking out for our own interests, but looking out for yours. And we came in already loving you. Of course, we will grow in love for you. We started with the base coat of love. And as we get to know you and you get to know us, hopefully there is mutual love that's expressed and we love each other more and more. But we do not want to have to prove ourselves to you to show you that we love you. And I would ask you a favor. Please do not make us feel like we have to prove ourselves to you in order to be loved. And I say this with gentleness as a plea, not as a rebuke. I just want to be real with you. I have felt like I've been on trial to a degree based on the mistakes of past people. And I'm not interested in proving myself to anybody. And I say that with the boldness of Christ as I stand here in the pulpit. In fact, listen to the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I've memorized them because I need them during this season. He says, to me, it's a very small thing if I'm judged by any of you. In fact, I don't even judge myself, but I am not by thereby this acquitted. 
In fact, I save myself to he who judges rightly, and that is the Lord, the one who will bring all things to light in the last days. He's saying, I don't care if I'm judged by you. Because my security is in Christ, not how you feel about me. My security is in Christ, not if you think we're meeting the approval bar of what you thought that we should be doing. So if we lead you with humility and the dependency of Christ, then proving itself should take care of itself as Jesus manifests himself to this body. Amen? And according to this text, a humble leadership and a humble church is built on a mutual love for one another, resulting in mutual concern for one another's welfare. Oh, I need to start moving fast. Humble leadership, number three, realizes that they need to mobilize others in order to care for the people correctly. Look at verses 22-24. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he proved as a son for me in the gospel, and I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come too. I want you to understand something that Paul had going on at this time. I mean, his options were limited. He was in prison, so he sent Timothy. It sounds kind of counterintuitive. And I want to point out what, how loving that was. Thank God for plurality, especially in seasons like this. Plurality means different things to different people, but to us it means different in giftedness, but each elder is the same as authority. So Tim or Dan or Lee um, ministering to the needs of the body is the same as if I am. Paul believed that, and he sent Timothy and assumed that it would be as fruitful as if he sent himself, but he couldn't send himself because... You can't really send yourself places when you're in jail. Our cops could tell you that. But the failure to understand this has been one of the biggest factors that has taken out pastors and stunted congregations. Pastors don't take the time to invest in leaders, so they think that they have to be this messianic superman and go around and meet the needs of each and every person that they talk to. So they think that they're being loving to the congregation by trying to meet all of those needs within a person uh, of every person themselves. And it creates this disease thinking because people begin to think, Hey, I wasn't really ministered to unless the senior pastor came to my bedside while I was in the hospital. Where do you see that? You definitely don't see it in this passage. Paul says himself, hey, I started the church. I'm not coming. My plan is to be in jail tomorrow, but I might send you Timothy. So first off, if you think that way, show it to me in the Bible. Secondly, I have yet to meet a pastor who's a part of that system who stuck it out and hasn't gotten burnt out eventually. That's just a fact, Jack. In other words, they need, their need to be needed superseded their desire for intimacy with Christ. And it's one of the biggest reasons that we don't believe in a senior pastor. There is a senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship. Who's his name? Who's his name? Yeah, it ain't me. It's not Tim, the senior pastor. Who's his name? Yeah, so the best that we can do is be a couple of fools pointing you at him. And Paul often used that language. He says, who am I? You're a mere fools for Christ's sake meant to point you to him. There's one senior pastor. His name ain't Eric. His name ain't Tim. His name ain't anybody that you could put on it other than Jesus Christ. 
Number four, humble leadership raises up other humble leaders. This point is similar to the last one, but it's worth mentioning for a couple reasons. First of all, it's in the text. Secondly, it takes the level of intentionality to see this to happen because it doesn't just happen. Third, it's rare. Four, it affects the thing, the effects of not doing it are disastrous on many levels. Even in prison, think about this. Even in prison, Paul was raising up leaders for the next generation of the church. Because even if he got out, he was still only one man. He could never meet the needs of a whole church. It took the humble cultivation and the humility and trust of leaders and the trust on the behalf of the congregation to unleash the work of ministry without micromanaging it. And you can see right here, micromanaging is not a design from God. You can't, guess what you can't do if you're in jail? You can't micromanage. Paul was in Rome. He was sending Timothy to Philippi. You can't micromanage Timothy from Philippi. He didn't have a phone or a smartphone or a computer or email or anything like that. He had to entrust that that which was imparted to Timothy would be able to minister to the body. And folks, I also want to point out that raising up leaders does not just happen. The seminary model has really jacked up this line of thinking. It was like people think, I'm going to send somebody away who's not equipped to be a leader, and when they get back, they're going to have a piece of paper on the wall, and we can hire them, and they will be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Look, I'm not anti-seminary. I went to Bible college and seminary, but that did not equip me to be ready to be a leader in the church. And when we think that leadership cultivation is just going to happen, first of all, it's lazy on behalf of the leaders. Secondly, it does not follow the biblical model. Third, the church can only go as far as that single leader goes, so it ends up being stunted. Guys, fifth point, and we're coming near the end here, humble leadership longs to minister to the needs of the people. You see that so clearly in verses 25 and 26. He says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for all of you, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, even to the point of death. I want to reiterate, we long to minister to you, church family. We long, Folks who came here from Remedy, we long to minister to you. Folks who've been here from TFC, we long to minister to you. Redeemer Fellowship, we long to minister to you. Because it's when your gifts start to synergize and you minister to each other that true ministry will take place, and it's not just four or five men ministering to the needs of a couple of hundred. We long to minister to you. We want to have the heart of Epaphroditus. Listen, this guy was about to die. Do you get that? This guy was about to die. I just sat with, I'm sorry to blow up your spot, homie, but uh, I just sat with Seski right before this service, and he was just telling me how sick he is coming off of medications. Did you? Did any of you get that by watching him raise his hands with the biggest smile on his face ever in worship? You want to know why? Because he's like Epaphroditus. He longs to minister to you, even in the midst of his illness. And, and, and the church needs examples like that. If everybody taps out every time they feel like tapping out, then the church does not get the chance to be able to benefit from you being squeezed in the olive press of Jesus Christ's sanctification machine. We want to be like Epaphroditus. We want to have the heart of Paul. And if we were honest, 
Paul probably needed his friends more than the Philippians did. Paul was in prison, guys. I don't know if you understand prison back in the day. We've been, I've been to the prison that Paul was in. You don't have people bringing you three hots and a cot and then be able to go and watch TV while you're sitting in there. That's not the way it was. You sat in a hole. In this prison specifically, you know how Rome is called the city on, a, on seven hills? Anybody hear that? Well, guess what happens? I don't mean to be graphic, but this is actually part of Paul's story. Guess what happens if you go to the bathroom on the top of a hill? And guess where Paul's prison was? Right there at the pit that it all drained down to. And he had one little hole in the bottom of it to where he'd be able to dip a cup in for water if you were thirsty enough to want to drink that water. That was his circumstances. And he had two men that were tending to him. And he says, you know what? Because I love this church so much, I'd rather send those two men to be able to care for your needs because I'd be way more joyful to see that the Philippians were taken care of than to know that they were here taking care of my needs. We want you to know that these are not mere words, but these texts represent our God-given reflection of our hearts for the body here. Number six is humble people would rather send than keep. Look at verses 27, 28. All of these are leadership, except for this. I think this also falls on the congregation. He says he was ill to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but on me also, lest I should not have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you be able to rejoice at seeing him again, and that I might be less anxious. Look, there's always going to be more needs in a church. Do you guys get that? You're never going to get to a place where you're like, all right, 200s become 400, and then 400s become 600, and now we have no needs because we're just filling all of them. That's that's insanity. Read the book of Acts. A church had 5,000 in a day. And it was needier than any church that I could ever think of. Be careful, folks, when you say that you wish that you were the church of Acts. You don't know what you're wishing for. And we'll go through that in a few weeks. But some, I would even say most leaders, resist in sending because they feel like it diminishes their ability to minister to the body. It's fear-based. It's messianic, complex-based. And it's incredibly short-sighted. It takes humility to send because you're not going to get the initial return on your investment when you send, give, and serve. Somebody's getting that benefit, but it's not you. So you have to trust that the biggest credit that you're going to get is eternal, meaning future, and you might not be able to taste the benefit of it here at the church at this time. But humble people are willing to send and not just keep because it realizes that meeting needs might look good in the short term, but sending is critical to the healthy future. I have seen the church look so much more like Laban than Paul. And by Laban, I mean when he's saying, hey, release me. And Laban's like, hey, work seven more years, then I'll release you. And he's like, all right, here's the seven years. All right, release me. Okay, work seven more years, and then I'll release you. And then a third time, release me, work seven more years. And finally he's like, no, no, fool me twice, shame on you. Fool me, fool me twice. Isn't that how George Bush said it? I was trying to give you a Bushism right there. It takes humility to sin. Humble people are willing to send and not just keep. And the last point is humble people are willing to receive others with humility and kindness. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. It says, So receive, uh, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. How about that statement being on your resume? 
so many people fluff up their resumes with, I went to this school, I've read this book, I've been a Calvinist since I was two. I don't care. Put that. I almost died for the work of Christ, yet here I am still longing to minister to your needs. That's a testimony. And then he finishes it by saying that he was risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is kind of the key for this whole thing to work. Timothy and Epaphroditus could have been as humble as they wanted to, folks. But if they were not received by the people, then they would have been stifled in their effectiveness to lead them. Paul tells the Philippians, honor such men. These men who came along when the Philippian church was struggling and needed help, Paul says, honor such men. Paul actually tells them, demonstrate your humility by the ability to show honor. As we are not an honor culture, and the church needs to be at the forefront of reversing that. I see it when I've gone down on mission trips to Central America or when, I, when I've gone into Caribbean countries and I'm able to see an honor culture and see what it looks like. And then I come to America, I'm like, man, we wouldn't know an honor culture if it smacked us in the face. And he's saying develop an honor culture to the point where you are honoring these men when they come to you. And I love that he doesn't just leave it in honor, but he anchors it back into the theme of the book. He comes back to the idea of joy. A community where people are mutually committed to outdoing one another in honor. Do you know what it leads to? Mutual joy for both leadership and people. And that's a healthy church. Amen? So as I close, I want to remind you of the progression we see here. We saw the humility of Jesus, the only one that ever really had to humble himself. In the writings of John Stott, he says there was only one man that should have ever had to have humbled himself, and that was Jesus, because he was the only one that had anything that ever had to be humbled. Number two, as people began to take on the, the humility of Christ seriously, it resulted in a humble church. Number three, as the humble church fixed its eyes on the humility of Christ, it raises up and is led by humble leadership. Next week, we're going to see that the people who are fixed on Christ's humility, walking in Christ's humility, being led in Christ's humility, will be able to focus on the right things, things that we can only see when we push pride on the way and fix our eyes on Jesus and the things that he would focus on. I want to see this church focused on the right things, don't you? Amen. So as we close, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask the community group leaders to come up here or care group leaders.